Welcome to Fire Away, Rudner Law's online show focused on the employment law issues that matter to you. My name is Stuart Rudner. I'm an employment lawyer and mediator and your host of this season four, episode two of Fire Away, where we talk about privacy versus workplace safety. Just a reminder, Fire Away streams live online every month. If you miss an episode or want to watch one again, they're always available on our YouTube channel, our Facebook page, LinkedIn, and on our website. If you are watching live and have a question, we'd be happy to answer it. You can post questions as a comment on Facebook or on YouTube or by tweeting to at Runner Law. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by two guests. First of all, we have Michael Hartley. Michael is a risk management professional and the CEO and founder of Mindtel. And my second guest today is Evert Ackerman. He's an HR director and principal advisor of XNL HR, HR and Communications. Michael and Avert, thank you both for joining me. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you, Stuart. So we are still talking about COVID-19. We've just celebrated the uh, somewhat dubious anniversary of one year since a pandemic was declared. Case numbers have risen, they've fallen, they've risen again. Viewers will probably remember last May and June, we were talking about getting back to business. Since then, we've had full closures, partial closures, the good news is that the vaccines are being rolled out uh, across the country. And I think the reality is that many people, many businesses are counting on the vaccines to help us get back to normal and back to business. So now the concern we're starting to talk about more is what about people who refuse to get vaccinated? Can a business owner require that all of their employees be vaccinated? Can they demand proof that someone's been vaccinated? Can you refuse to hire someone who has not been vaccinated? This is the current topic of debate. And just by way of introduction, I'm sure most viewers that have seen and heard um, experts opining in the media on this very subject. And we've heard people who have quite adamantly said that, of course, employers have the right to require that their employees be vaccinated. But then they quickly mentioned that employees with medical conditions or religious beliefs, for example, will be exempt. Or we hear people saying that absolutely not. Employers cannot require vaccination except in certain industries like long-term healthcare facilities. So to me, the better question is not so much can employers mandate vaccinations, it's what's the default? Can employers mandate them with exceptions or can they not mandate them except in certain situations? That's, you know, and the reason we're debating this is because as is often the case in employment law, we're, we're balancing different rights and duties. As regular viewers will know, employers always have a duty to make reasonable efforts to provide a safe work environment for their staff. At the same time, of course, employees have privacy rights. They have human rights. And many of the initiatives we've talked about will infringe upon those rights to a certain degree. We've talked about this in the context of temperature testing, of having employees have to answer questionnaires that talk about different risk factors before they enter the workplace, uh, having insisting that employees be tested, etc. And of course, in addition to ethical and legal rights, there's practical rights too, which is, a, I know Michael will comment on some of the practical issues that arise. So I've uh, done enough topping, talking as an intro. I'm very excited to have Michael and Evert with me, both of whom bring a tremendous amount of expertise in dealing with these issues from, I'd say, somewhat different perspectives. So Michael, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll start with you and, and we'll start very vague and then I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll drill down from there. Should employers be entitled to impose requirements that extend into employees' personal lives in the name of safety? Well, first of all, sir, thank you so much for, for having us on. Uh, the short answer is uh, probably. Uh, 
<laughs> and uh, and I'll tell you why. If uh, employer X sees a particular uh, system or a control as a way to mitigate against a risk, then they need to be able to a implement that control uh, if it provides reasonable assurance that that risk will be mitigated. And then they also have to be able to demonstrate that that control is working. So in the, in the case of vaccines, that's going to be understanding what our vaccination rates are at any one of our sites or locations um, and having a system in place that allows uh, individuals to be reminded when booster shots are, are, are on offer and, and are due. So in, in short, I would say absolutely. Uh, it's part of managing risk and COVID is a hazard that presents a risk to a lot of businesses across Canada and around the world. Right. I like the way you went from probably to absolutely in the span of about two minutes. So we've already made a lot of progress today. Uh, but I think you made a really key point, Michael, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's all fine and dandy for an employer to say we're doing this in the name of safety. They've actually got to show that it is directly related to the stated goal and to your point that it is effective. So and that's one of the tests we often look at when we look, look at an infringement on, on an employee's privacy is, you know, what's the purpose you're doing it for? And is it reasonably likely to obtain that or to achieve that purpose? That's part of what we're looking at. So, Ivor, I'll, I'll pass it over to you. What are your thoughts on uh, infringing on employee privacy in the name of safety? Well, thank you, Stuart, for, uh, first of all, uh, for, for having me today. And uh, as you said when you opened a few minutes ago, it, it is a sad anniversary. It's one year exactly this week that all this uh, came together, came down. Um, what I've seen in the, in the, from both media and authorities is, a, a, I think, a, an overemphasis on uh, the employer's responsibility. What is the employer going to do in terms of keeping everything safe and, and screening, et cetera? While I think that the uh, the Occupational Health and Safety Act, the spirit of it, and the letter of it uh, as well, is that it's a two-way street. Like both employers and employees are responsible for um, you know keeping the workplace safe. And what I see, um, you know, mostly anecdotal evidence. For instance, I, I have seen an employee in a long-term care home who fill out a, a screening form. And it said, did you visit friends and family in the past few days? We'd fill out no, while well, the answer was yes. Um, the, uh, it's, it's also employees do online screening or, or on-site screening that fill out forms. And uh, I see a tendency to, you know, to chalk up, let's say, a sore throat or a runny nose to you know, just a cold rather than uh, risking uh, a 14, having to take a 14-day uh, self-quarantine. Because it's understandable that like people have run out of sick days, vacation days, or they don't have paid sick days. I can see how it's tempting. Um, also, for, for around Christmas, uh, a survey said that 52% of Canadians hung out or visited with friends and family. But and from people that I that I know, they basically live on Facebook in normal times. There were no pictures whatsoever. Normally, there were pictures of the extended family. This year, there were not even pictures of the nuclear family, which tells me that something is going on. Um, also, I have heard of hairstylists who went underground and are, are you know, receiving uh, clients, giving clients haircuts in, in garages. So the, 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 the challenge there was, how do you get them back out of the garage once all this is over? And one more example, also anecdotal, Parents instructing their kids, like, if you have a sore throat or a runny nose, just tell the teacher you're not feeling well. So in summary, I think that there should be more of a balance. Uh, 
with, with a joint responsibility, an emphasis on the joint responsibility of employees and employers to keep everybody safe. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, the key point you made there is it's always a balancing act. But mm-hmm. uh, and you brought you made some really interesting points that I do want to come back to about people who are dishonest in this whole process. Uh, but I love the fact that you brought it. You brought in haircutting. So I assume that was just because you wanted us to recognize the fact that you had your haircut today and are looking <laughs> particularly sharp. So we'll put that on the record now. Um, but in all seriousness, I mean, I think you make a great point. And, and before I come back to the whole discipline issue, Michael, I wanted to. I guess roll back a little bit. I mean, now we're talking about vaccination and forced vaccination. Before that, we had you know temperature checks. You had to line up at the door, have your temperature tested before you could come in, or filling out the forms that Evert mentioned, and, and people maybe not doing them so honestly. Or, or in one case that um, that I heard of, where you know the form asked for all the different risk factors, and employees had to go through and check off yes, no, yes, no. But at the very end, they didn't submit the form. And all they were asked by their employer was to say, did you fill out the form? Yes or no. I never actually asked for the results of this form, which is just a complete gap in the process, uh, which I guess probably Michael is, is a good segue to where you come in. Um, so I'm curious as to what you've seen in terms of people objecting to things like temperature testing, filling out forms, and also if you've seen any, um, I'll say gaps or, or mistakes like the one I just mentioned. Yeah, I think what we've seen over the course of the year is a false reliance on uh, silver bullets. Uh, initially, it was masks and ventilators, uh, and then it was stay at home. And we see the failings in that. Then it was testing, and we've seen some of the challenges that we've had with testing. And now the, the reliance is the silver bullet of vaccines. Well, the fact of the matter is that uh, there are a number of controls that have to line up in order for this risk to be properly mitigated. And to to Avert's point, there's absolutely a joint responsibility between employers and employees. And if employers are going to engage their workforce, they've got to be able to demonstrate the capacity that they can detect where these problems are. They've got to demonstrate the capacity to be able to listen to um, to their employees. They've got to be able to demonstrate the capacity to intervene where we have, where there are problems whether it be um, you know, underreporting on screenings or uh, lower vaccination rates at certain locations or uh, hand washing, distancing challenges within the environment itself. Um, and then that ability to, uh, you know, to inform back to the workforce as well as external stakeholders. You know, one of the f- conversations I had in the mining sector um, when this all kicked off about a year ago Uh, A colleague of mine, he works in the mining sector and his wife works for a different mining company. And he said, yeah, it's funny. My wife said for the first time ever that she didn't want me to go to a mine site because she didn't think it was safe. And that's when it clicked for me that if we can't convince a miner that a mine site is safe, what chance does any company have with the lay public? And, And this is where this ability to broadcast how well controls are working on demand and in real time is going to differentiate those companies that succeed and those and those companies that will struggle with this for many years to come. It's a great, great point, a great example. And, and it, it brings me back to an issue we've been dealing with for, yeah, I guess a year now. I mean, or I guess a bit less than that. It really came about in May, June, when we started to have the first sort of return to work phase. And it was amazing how many of our employer clients had people who just refused to come back and, and seemed to think it was an option. Uh, but in many cases, it was because they were scared. 
they were either scared of the danger in the workplace itself, or in some cases, it was just scared to be out in public and perhaps using public transportation, etc. Uh, but to that point, I mean, how do you how do you reassure the workforce that coming back into the workplace is going to be safe? Well, I think I'm going to uh, use a term that you used earlier, which is uh, reasonable, providing reasonable assurance that the controls in place are, are working as intended by design. What we're aiming for here is that we've got healthy people entering a healthy workspace. And because we've got that as a slogan or it's a rule, doesn't mean that it's actually happening. And so we need to be able to, to gather the data around all the different controls that I talked about before uh, and be able to engage our workforce in understanding how well those controls uh, are working and then address the gaps that we have in place and then be able to broadcast that, that information out. The, the psychological contract that I'm a healthy person walking into a healthy workspace, that psychological contract is over. Uh, and, and we need to be able to have more demonstrable evidence that indeed we've got healthy people entering a healthy workspace. I, I love it. You mentioned this when we spoke last time, the term psychological contract, that's great. And uh, I've got to work that into a blog post. I love that. Um, anyway, so you, you mentioned an interesting point though, and we got we were getting this a lot especially back in the spring when, when Black Lives Matter and all the or all the protests were going on. And we had you know, situations where somebody would go to their supervisor or manager and say, hey, I know that so-and-so, you know, working five feet away from me was at a protest, or I know they were getting together with friends this weekend or whatever the case may be. Uh, and Avery, I'm sure you've seen this situation as well. So what, what have you told employers to do when they start having these people coming and, and you know, filing these out or making these allegations against coworkers? Well, the, um, it's, it's a bit of the, um, I, I think that the, what's going on is that employees are looking at things from their own perspective, which is like their, their micro uh, circumstance, while not fully realizing that, that one COVID case could shut down an entire workplace. So I think that it's, we see the same thing uh, specifically around Christmas, where all these, where we have the ride controls, and people sort of self-diagnose and say, no, no, I'm okay to drive. So, no, I just have a runny nose, it's just a cold. I can go in, it'll be fine. And the case that you, as Stuart, discussed a couple of times was Garda, where the employee was basically caught not following protocol and was uh, dishonest and unrepentant. So you have to have, as, as Michael referred to, you have to have, to have controls in place and then a fairly robust uh, implementation process. Like it actually has to be enforced. People need to see that, there's, that there are rules, one, and two, that they're being enforced. Because as you know, if you have a policy, you don't enforce it, you might as well not have a policy. And that goes not just for COVID, but for everything in the workplace. Yeah, as I say, if your practice is not consistent with your policy, your practice becomes your policy. So that's yes. a, a really critical point. And, and just for everyone's knowledge, the, the information or the case that Dave mentioned, Garda, involved a uh, screening officer at Pearson Airport who apparently continued attending work while waiting the results of her tests, uh, which I believe eventually came up positive. But I mean, I've said this many, many times, you know, just because there was misconduct there, just because she breached the policy, in and of itself, that may or may not have justified dismissal. It would have justified discipline of some, some sort. Mm -hmm. The key factor was exactly what you said. She was unapologetic, unrepentant, refused to acknowledge the seriousness of, of what she had done and the potential safety risk that she had caused uh, through the investigation, through the hearing, which is what led the arbitrator to conclude that, yeah, this, this employment relationship is irreparably harmed 
and they had just cause to fire her. So that's that's the only example so far I know of in Canada of uh, someone being fired due to breaching safety protocols and, and a judicial or an arbitral decision being rendered, although I'm sure we're going to see more over the next couple of years. Uh, but on that point, I mean, let's take, you know, you gave a bunch of examples before. People are having, you know, getting together with, with family over Christmas, people who are lying on the forums and even though they've got a runny nose and maybe a fever, they're saying, oh, it's just a cold, I'm fine to go to work. Uh, what are you seeing or what are you recommending that employers do when they catch someone doing that kind of thing? Well, the first thing that if, if that person needs to go home, let's, if, if it's the, the case uh, such as Garda, where, where somebody has been tested and is awaiting the results, you don't want to have employees at the office or at work uh, sitting at their desk awaiting the results and, and then finding out like, oh, by the way, it, it turns out that I, I'm positive. Now I need to go home. Um, it's, People, I think it's the responsibility of employees to self-report, to report the fact to their manager, supervisor, employer that they have been tested and that they need to be off work for, let's say, three days until the results come in. I'm not sure how long that's, let's say a couple of days. And only when they're cleared, they are cleared to go back to work. In the meantime, if, if at all possible, the employer would have to accommodate the employee's absence by allowing that person to work from home or work from anywhere, whatever the uh, solution there is, and accommodate uh, as much as possible. Yeah, although you mentioned an important point before, which is sick days. You know, and I know this has been in the media a lot. There's a lot of debate about whether provinces should somehow mandate more paid sick days, which is typically or, or historically federal jurisdiction. Uh, but you're right. A lot of a lot of these issues are caused by people who don't have any more paid sick days and they can't go without their income for three days or two weeks or whatever it is. So that's why they lie and uh, lie about the symptoms so they can come to work. So. Michael, I guess I'll, I'll flip this over to you. Um, yeah. oh, sorry, I'll come back to you in a second. Yeah, sorry. There, there again is the situation where uh, the, 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 the solution that is being presented or suggested is more paid sick days. But then again, that is being put on the employer's uh, plate, right? Because who is paying for those sick days then? Uh, well, employers, as you pointed out before as well, sometimes have lost 50, 60, 80, even 100% of their revenue. So something's got to give. So if there were to be paid sick days, I think it would have to be a government-funded situation because employers, many of them, are basically tapped out and they're in survival mode. Yeah, although, of course, if it's government-paid, really what that means is it's paid by all of us. So yeah. <laughs> there's issue there as well. Uh, but you're right. I mean, you know, 10, 10 paid sick days is a 4% increase in, on the payroll, you know, mm -hmm. right there without doing anything. So. Uh, there are many employers that can't afford that, but there are many, especially now, that can't. So that's a whole other issue. Uh, and Michael, I wanted to turn it back to you. So we take this scenario where you have all these procedures in place. And for example, people are supposed to be filling out the forms, but you know, as we talked about, they're, they're lying in the forms. So how do you have a system that, that somehow addresses the people who are not being honest? Yeah, far be it from me to ask all employers across the country to uh, systematically adopt empathy uh, within their organizations but i think that's probably what is going to what is going to take this this notion of uh you know employee x comes to their their line manager and says hey i'm not feeling well you know i, I need to i need to stay home if the reaction is negative that employee will show up to work the next time and so will all of their colleagues uh, and we've seen the detrimental effect that that has um, you know, uh, across uh, across businesses all over the world. And this notion of uh, organizations not being able to be good at reporting bad news is a misnomer. 
a lot of organizations are really bad at receiving bad news. And this is a case of bad news. And so how they react and respond is critical. Uh, so what's the isolation process? What's the support process? And three basic questions that need to be asked. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, you know, who's been involved? What do they need? And who's responsible for giving it to them? And those are three basic questions that employ, uh, uh, deploy, pardon me, a lot of empathy uh, in, in the response to individual X uh, identifying themselves as not fit for duty. No, I think I think you make a really good point, and, I, and I'll play devil's advocate. But of course, you know this is always the case. You know we have policies and practices in place that have good reason, even just sick days. It's a reason why we provide whatever number of paid sick days because people should be allowed to stay home and get better without risking a loss of pay. Uh, but then you always have a small percentage of people who abuse whatever system is in place. And just to your point, I've got one client who has had the same employee now go off four times because they suspect that they were exposed and they're going to go for testing and want to remain off work. But they also knew because at the very beginning, this employer said, we're going to pay you to stay home. So now the employer is feeling like they're being taken advantage of. And, and this is always the struggle we have. It doesn't matter what we're talking about, human rights, sick days, anything. You're always going to have a small number of people who take advantage. And then you're going to have this, this debate. Um, anyways, as, uh, as I think I'd mentioned in the pre-show, the time always flies by. So I'm mindful of the time. Um, but uh, I, I'll give you both, both a nice open-ended question to end things off. Just to anything else that you want to add on this whole issue of safety in the workplace versus privacy. Uh, Everett, do you want to go first? Yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking more in a, in a general sense where this is going to go. Like ideally, let's say in the next six months, uh, the, the, the vaccination is not going as fast as everybody hopes from what the reporting that I see. Uh, so ideally, in the next six months, let's say that we get to two thirds of the, the population, I, of course, the, the vulnerable groups first and then everybody else. Um, I was thinking like we may end up in a situation six months down the road where, let's say, as soon as you want to fly, you have to fill out whether you've been vaccinated or if you want to participate in a sports event, there would be an online form that says, you know, have you been vaccinated? Or if you get invited to a birthday party, like RSVP, and the second question, have you been vaccinated? It's, people are scared. It's understandable, but it really uh, puts a bit of a damper on a lot of things that used to be uh, great fun. Um, I do hope that once we get to the stage where two thirds of the population uh, is successfully vaccinated, that the, the urgency wears off a bit. Great. Now, I think that's a great point and an interesting analysis. And as you were talking, my thought is, you know, at some point, though, if we keep having everyone do that, especially online or on, on their mobile devices, it's just going to become like the, the acceptance of the terms and conditions that we all scroll through without reading and click on accept. So at some point, it's going to become meaningless. But uh, I think you're right. And the whole you know passport idea, one that a lot of people are talking about, that you can't fly unless you confirm you've been vaccinated, etc. We might see it at workplaces and sporting events, too. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next six months and probably the next two or three years. So, Michael, any uh, any final thoughts? Yeah. So, first of all, the the premise that this is safety versus uh, privacy that there's a trade off, I think, is is false. Um, again, uh, employer employer, pardon me, has a duty of care not only to their individual their employees, but their employees' personal health information. And there's ways to structure technology to be able to protect privacy while at the same time providing reasonable assurance on safety as well. If we go back 20 years, almost 20 years ago, 
uh, flying was very well. Flying was very very different 20 years ago, and it all changed, right? And a, a sanitation company said to me that this is sanitation's industry's 9/11. Uh, the value that we put on uh, on hygiene, sanitation has completely changed. And now we look at what was uh, what's acceptable now in terms of flying, all the processes that we've got to go through uh, previous prior to 20 years ago. We're going to see the same thing of of trying to get uh, uh, healthy people into a healthy workspace, event space, whatever that may be. And uh, yeah, having that in information that's um, integratable and can get to the right decision makers is going to be paramount into making that process as, as seamless and as painless as possible. Yeah, and, and I appreciate you calling me on the title, which was obviously done just to mostly to get attention. But uh, yeah, we are often balancing these issues. And so I think you make, make a really good point. And, and one of the reasons I was excited to have you on the show is because you have brought some very practical views and approaches to how to deal with these issues. So Pleasure. I will thank you both. I really, uh, I think that was great. And I really appreciate you both taking the time to join me today. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you Pleasure. so much. And now I get uh, my turn to fire away. So I want to talk briefly today about the impact of a pandemic on notice of dismissal or severance entitlements. We all know that notice of dismissal, severance entitlements are often impacted by many factors because the default at law is that people are entitled to quote unquote reasonable notice of dismissal. And it's impacted by things like the length of service, like their age, the nature of their job, the availability of similar work. And our courts have always said anything else that's relevant. So the question is, is a global pandemic relevant? And, and if so, how does it impact notice periods? Because, of course, you can see both arguments being made and they have been made for the last few months. On the one hand, employers argue that the pandemic has devastated their businesses. They've been shut down. They've had dramatically reduced revenues. They can't afford to keep their staff. They're basically saying they need a break and that severance entitlements have to be reduced because they can't afford what would be a typical entitlement in, in a non-pandemic scenario. On the flip side, we've got employees who are saying that notice periods are essentially intended to keep people afloat until they find new work. We all recognize that if there is a, an industry or a local or a global economy that has been impacted, it's going to take people even longer to find new work. Therefore, severance periods should get longer. So we've got these two opposing views. Now, putting the pandemic aside for the moment, I mean, I've been asked this question for as long as I've been practicing. I've had employers saying, look, we are in dire financial straits. We can't afford to keep people. We're letting them go. Surely a court is going to take that into account when they're assessing this person's severance entitlement. We're not firing them to be mean. We're not firing them to go find somebody else. We're doing it because we can't afford them. And historically, the law has always been clear on this point that the economic circumstances of an employer are not a relevant factor in assessing severance obligations. That's always been the case. And even in economic downturns and recessions, notice periods have not been reduced. And if anything, they have resulted in a, I'll say a slight bump in the notice periods because of the anticipated length of time it will take people to find new work. So that's the historical legal analysis. How are these, and I'll, I'll use the term, how are these unprecedented times gonna be treated? That of course remains to be seen. And we'll see cases over the next few years that will consider that. We're just starting to see the tip of the iceberg now. We saw one case that involved an individual that was actually dismissed before the pandemic. 
and they argued that their severance or the notice period should be longer because of the pandemic. And what the court confirmed is that no, you assess the notice entitlement at the time of termination. At the time of termination, it was back last February, there was no pandemic. That was the first case. And then we had another one just within the last few weeks of somebody who was let go after the pandemic started. And I've got a quote from the case here. I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but it is quite insightful because what the court said was, uh, I have no doubt or have little doubt that the pandemic has had some influence upon the job search. Um, however, the court goes on to say, it must also be borne in mind that the impact of the pandemic on the economy in general and on the job market was highly speculative and uncertain, both as to the degree and the duration at the time that Mr. Irotakis's employment was terminated. So again, you assess the notice period at the time of termination. So even if it was, let's say in last June, when we were all talking about getting back to business, nobody really anticipated at that point that we'd be here in March, still talking about the numbers going up in Ontario. So what's interesting in that case is the court did not explicitly say what impact the pandemic had on the notice period, but the, the, the decision was consistent with all the previous cases, basically saying that if anything, a pandemic will have a slight impact, a slight positive impact on notice period, but it's gonna be mild and they don't wanna see dramatic shifts one way or the other. But in, in any case, we're not gonna see, I don't think any notice periods going down because of the pandemic. If anything, they're gonna go up. But the last point I wanna make before I close is as we often remind people on this show and on our social media and anywhere else people will listen to us, this whole discussion about what is reasonable in terms of severance becomes completely irrelevant if you have a strong contract in place. If you do, the contract set spells out exactly what the individual will get. And you don't have to waste your time or your money trying to figure out what is reasonable notice and then negotiating it. And if you can't agree, litigating the issue. And you can dramatically reduce your, your severance costs by having a good contract. I mean, in, in some cases, it can be the difference between 24 months of severance and eight weeks. So I will conclude this part by encouraging everyone to contact a member of our team, talk about how we can help you to have that certainty and also reduce your labor costs by using really strong contracts. That's my two cents worth, and that's my, my rant for, for this month. That's all the time we have for season four, episode two of Fire Away. I wanna thank everyone for tuning in, and in particular, I wanna thank Michael and Avert for joining me and providing their, their insights, which were as insightful as I expected they would be, frankly, so I'm glad they both joined me today. I wanna to remind everyone that at Rudner Law, we wanna pe help people make informed decisions and remind you to treat your employment relationships as legal relationships. I invite you to keep up to date on employment law issues by following our social media, by signing up for our newsletter, and also checking out our COVID-19 Resource Center, which we continue to update anytime there's something new that develops, which is usually still several times a week. As I always say though, none of that replaces tailored legal advice customized to your particular circumstances. And as I always say again, if you think you might need an employment lawyer, you probably do. So feel free to reach out to us. We'd be glad to chat with you. Next month, I'm very excited. I'm gonna be joined by Matt Richardson of the Digital Empowerment Project for a discussion of social media and the HR world. I learned about Matt at the HRPA conference in January. He had not one, but two sessions on how to use social media to, to learn more about people, including candidates and including your own employees. He's got some fascinating tricks, some fascinating insights uh, so it should be a great show. If you have any questions in the meantime, 
please feel free to contact us on any of our social media channels or email us at info at rudnerlaw.ca. Just a reminder again, past episodes can be found on YouTube, on our website, and on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you like our page or subscribe to our channels, you'll get notifications when the shows go live. And last but certainly not least, thank you to Rob, to Rebecca, to Mark for helping us out and making this go as smoothly as it always does. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.